Good morning, friends. Uh, go ahead and remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come meet us here in this place, wherever we're at this morning, um, and speak to our hearts in a personal way. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everybody. Long, long ago, in another time, in another place, a small town where everybody knows your name, a woman goes out to draw water from the well, specifically in the middle of the day, the hottest time with the desert sun high in the sky. A time when she knows no one else will be around. Her intent that day, as any other day, is to avoid any possible interactions with people and the awkward judging gazes that presumptuously say, I know who you are. I know your story. I know what you've done. I know what kind of person you are. And after drawing water, she heads home, closes the door, greets her partner, and then sits down to then wonder what is my life? Will it be this way forever? Will I feel nothing but judgment from others and disgust at myself forever? This is her life, day in, day out. This is her story. 
Meanwhile, in another time, in another place, a woman, whom I'll call Rachel here, asks her friend this question. Am I a slut? This question comes out of this context. She is in a relationship. They're not married. They sleep together, which she knows is against the values of her conservative family and her belief system. But the guy she is with is also psychologically abusive. And there is even a nagging fear that things could get physical. And so she's caught between the hard place of wanting out, but still wanting to feel wanted and loved. The nature of their relationship is largely a secret to her family. Her parents are our first-generation Vietnamese immigrants who hold strongly to the values of honor and the avoidance of shame. The family happens to go to church where that avoidance of shame combined with a culture of preserving purity at all costs results in messages that implicitly say to her, you are dirty. As a result, she continues to hide her private life from her family. Given the stance of her church, she would not ever dare be vulnerable in with anyone there. Her friends who know a little more cast subtle judgment and that she begins to believe more and more, I am dirty. That mutates into, I am not worthy. No one else will ever want me. And then the messages loop and loop in her mind only to be reinforced by the people around her, both directly and indirectly. This is her story. Now, last one, I promise. A close friend of mine whom I'll call Brian one day finally decides, you know what, I think I'm done with God. Uh, Brian had moved around a lot for school and then for work, but one random afternoon when he happens to be back in Seattle, we grab lunch and all of this pours out. You know what, Brooks? If my parents died today, I don't know what I'd feel, but I don't think I would be sad. And I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? He goes on to talk about how the God that was preached and taught about at his church, the God he would hear about, and the God his parents apparently believed in and followed, and how none of that lined up with his experience at home in a supposedly God-fearing, Jesus-loving household. You know, the word grace gets thrown around a lot in Christian cultures, but that was not what he felt. At home, it was the constant pileup of expectations for achievement, low-level abuse coupled with little to no emotional support, which some would label as tough love. And then there was the constant comparison and the pressure. All that was combined with what he came to realize was barely a functioning marriage between his parents. And so the common script in his mind growing up was, I will never be enough. And if this is what God is like, I will never be enough for him either. So why do I even bother? He did graduate. He did become a doctor like his parents wanted. But that soon led to burnout within a couple of years, leaving his profession. Apparently, it would seem the messages he felt, I am not enough, played themselves out and won. This was his story. 
The first story should feel familiar because it's straight out of the Gospel of John. The second two might feel familiar, partly because you see elements of them in the life of someone you know, or you even see elements of them in your own life, in your own experience. So today is part two of our mini-series on shame, and if you're wondering, didn't we read that same passage last week? The answer is yes, we did. And that's because today is more of a continuation of last week than an entirely different teaching. So if you missed the first message, that's okay, but do go check out our podcast, give it a listen. Um, But I'll recap the themes real quick here. First, the enemy, Satan, is bent on destroying relationships. That's relationship between us and each other, as well as us and God. Second, the enemy uses shame as a weapon. Satan is a deceiver and an accuser, and so shame is one of his primary weapons of choice. Third, shame is elusive, isolating, and self-propagating. Part of the nature of shame is that it's hard to pinpoint. It's hard to see immediately. It thrives in the shadows of our lives, in areas that we tend to miss or areas that we would just rather avoid. But as it lurks in the shadows, there it grows and festers like an untended wound. Fourth, shame has been embedded in the human story, our story, since the beginning. And so today we turn our attention to our own story. Because the truth is, this is one of the very things that makes us human. We, as a species, are storytellers. Think about it. What are among the first things you talk about when you hang out with someone? Like, if it's a, if it's a friend, familiar buddy, it's probably, hey, how was your week? What'd you do this weekend? And then you proceed to share the stories of your week. If you're meeting someone new, it's, hey, Nice to meet you. Tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Do you go to school? What's your story? And then you would proceed to share and exchange snippets and fragments of your life story, whatever it is you're willing to share anyway. We create stories. If you're a writer, a director, an actor, artist, or a content creator of some kind, you make a living off of creating stories. And then think of the entertainment we consume from from books to shows and movies all the way to short TikTok clips and Instagram stories. We like to consume stories of all shapes and sizes. And oftentimes the stories we love most are the stories that relate to us in some way, stories we can connect with, or they're stories that we want to live out ourselves in some way. Stories define what we believe. If you're a follower of Jesus, you believe the creation story. You believe the story of the cross. If you're a secular atheist, you believe the story that existence came out of cosmic chance. Some believe the story that is the American dream. Others believe the story of upward mobility or the prosperity gospel. We are storytellers. Our lives are unfolding stories starting from even before we're born and brought into the world. And so before we go any further, we need to ask first this question. Well, what was the original story? Because today, at this point in the grand human narrative, it's very easy to lose track. 
If you have your Bibles, we're going to start right on page one. Um, this is Genesis 1, 1. I think it'll be up on the screen. And you know what? Why don't we read it together? Ready? One, two, three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to focus on the first part. In the beginning, God created. So our God is a creator God. Therefore, creativity is a core part of who he is. It's a key part of his beauty, I would say. We are witnesses to his creativity every time we spend time outside, on the beach, in the mountains, in Leavenworth, but also every time we simply look around this room at all the faces. As we people watch at the mall or in the city, God's creativity is on constant display. Now, jump to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Part of what it means to bear the image of God God, a creator, is to create. Friends, we were born to be creative. And I fast forward to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So we see there's a, there's a link between creativity and joy, creativity and goodness. Now, remember last week when we talked about how part of joy and part of the flourishing that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden was vulnerability. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When we are free to be vulnerable, by extension, we are free to be creative and by creative, I don't just mean, you know, making things or being an artist necessarily. That's part of it. But creativity also means daring to be curious, discovering, expressing yourself without fear of judgment, as well as making and creating. Here's an example. When I was in grade school, I was really unconfident, uh, not to mention just super shy and, and self-conscious. Uh, in other words, I was deathly afraid of vulnerability. And as a result, I rarely spoke up in class. I almost never asked questions. These are things that I, I really regretted later on in life. But do you see how the lack of vulnerability stunts our creativity and therefore our joy? When we are afraid of vulnerability, our creative process runs into a barrier that says things like, well, this is a stupid idea anyway. That's, that's a dumb question. You just better not ask that. Or it probably won't work. I'll probably fail. Why would I even try that? Why would I ask that question? They'll laugh at me, so on and so forth. But to sum it up, in the opening pages of Scripture, we see that we were made by a creator, God, a creative God, and that we were made to be creative, to flourish in creativity and joy, creating goodness on earth just as he does. And not only that, we were made to co-create with others. 
When we are in healthy relationships, we co-create together. We co-create fun. We share a good time. We share laughs. We co-create love. We co-create memories. This is the original story as God intended. Creativity and joy together. I think of the word recreation, which, you know, we understand to mean play. To play is to recreate. As if play is to recapture some part of life in Eden. But that's an entirely different sermon series. But if we're made by a creative God, then it's no surprise then that storytelling is in our DNA. It's the essence of our humanity. So, how does that work? How are we storytellers? Well, let's start with where stories are processed and formed. In the mind. Dr. Kurt Thompson, whose book, The Soul of Shame, is, is just a large inspiration for this whole series, he writes this, and, and pardon, pardon the, the, the technical jargon, I'll unpack it, I promise. The mind is a fluid emerging process that is both embodied and relational, whose task is to regulate the flow of energy and information. We are always sensing, imaging, feeling, thinking, or acting out something, whether consciously or unconsciously, while awake or asleep. And he goes on. As our minds develop, eventually we try to make sense of our lives. We take the input from our awareness of our conscious, vertical, horizontal, and memory domains, and we begin to tell our stories, with most of that content being nonverbal and non-conscious in nature. In layman's terms, our minds are constantly taking in and processing information and making sense of all that we take in. In the world of psychology, it's, it's a bit more complicated, but I'm going to lay it out in a simple framework here, just to sum up the flow of how we tell and live out stories. We start by sensing, feeling, taking in our surroundings, perceiving. Then we process that information, which then forms the narrative or the story that we believe and live by, which is then reinforced by our surroundings or the people around us. And this begins from the moment we are infants. You know, one of, one of my greatest joys as Phoebe's dad is watching her every time she tries new food. She'll, she'll take in that new food, whether it's a blueberry, a bite of avocado, or, or ice cream, we're just very responsible parents, uh, and then she'll taste and sense feeling and then process and register that the food is delicious, which subsequently results in like the heartiest, cheesiest grin, followed by bouncing in her high chair. She loves food. She is a foodie, go figure. But already she's processing information. And as she's doing so, she's learning what makes her feel good and what doesn't. She's learning what she likes and what she dislikes. Her narrative or her story is being written. I am Phoebe and I love cheese, avocado, and Molly Moon's ice cream. I am a bougie baby. Now, this is an innocent example, but her mind is also processing more consequential information. She's developing a sense of safe attachments, whether or not she feels safe with her caretakers, her parents, who she feels uneasy around, 
This person makes me feel comfortable. That person makes me feel a little uncomfortable. It used to always be grandpa. It was really kind of funny. Phoebe and, and other babies can also perceive from an early age whether or not they are wanted. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who's a psychiatrist who wrote the really popular book, The Body Keeps the Score, reminds us that mirror neurons develop early on, and those are the things that allow infants to perceive rejection, depending on how their caregivers react towards them. And then from that, they can develop secure attachments or the opposite. Shame is experienced, it's sensed, it's felt early on. More on that in a bit. And so right away, in the first few months of her life, Phoebe's story already entails, I am wanted or I am not wanted, which through the course of growing up a bit, as the mind continues to mature and to process information more deeply, can morph into, I am loved or I am not loved, which then becomes, I am lovable or I am Unlovable. I am enough or I am not enough. So far, we see what we sense and feel from an early age until now on a daily basis is processed and formed into a narrative or a story. Does that make sense? Now, it can be processed and formed in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. Again, more on that in a bit. But this healthy or unhealthy processing determines how our stories are written. Now, the plot thickens. We are not the only writers in our story. There are co-writers, for better or for worse. We are relational beings. It was how we were created. And it's part of how we're meant to flourish in healthy relationship with others and in healthy relationship with God. But the fact that we're relational beings means that other people, from our family and friends to our classmates and coworkers, and even to strangers we encounter and the celebrities that we watch and follow, all of these people have an influence on our story. And in fact, because of this, our stories usually begin even before we're born. Before Phoebe was born, Amanda and I were already knowingly and unknowingly projecting storylines into her. Honey, I think Phoebe's going to be really good at skateboarding one day. Honey, I think our girl's going to be super spunky. We're projecting. We're, we're already starting to write her story. Who here had parents who said, oh, you were supposed to be a boy. Or you were supposed to be a girl. You know, right away, before you were born, your story might have already started with disappointment. The writing process has already begun. Then... Our stories get reinforced by our surroundings and our relationships. If I grow up in a home where uh, secure attachments to my parents, uh, where I feel safe, valued, and loved, if the regular feelings that I feel and the messages that I hear and process say, Brooks, we love and support you. We will always be here for you no matter what. You are created by a good and loving God and you have inherent worth. If that's the basis of my story, then when I spend time with friends who are supportive, trustworthy, and loving, then those things get reinforced. 
And if I encounter anyone who challenges those things, if I'm, say, bullied or made fun of, all of the put-downs, the mean comments, the criticism, though they might sting a little bit in that moment, they'll ultimately bounce off because my truest self is secure. I know deep down I am valued, worthy, and loved. Now, if the opposite is true, if I grow up in a home where criticism is the norm, where the absence of encouragement and affection is normal, or emotional distance and even abuse are the norms, if the regular messages I receive from those closest to me are things like, you could do better, try harder next time, boys don't do that, girls don't behave like that, or even worse, you're a wimp, that shirt makes you look like a fill-in-the-blank. If that's the basis of my story, then when I spend time with people who are supportive, encouraging, and nurturing, then most, if not all, of the positive things they say and contribute to my story will bounce off and they will not stick because deep down, my closest attachments never reinforce those things about me. And so they must not be true. I mean, who here tends to remember the criticism and the discouraging things people say rather than the good things? And then to add fuel to the flames, again, if this is the basis of my story, anytime someone bullies, abuses, or even just criticizes me, it'll sting, but I will believe them. The negative things about me get reinforced. The lies about my worth and value become reinforced as a core part of my story and who I am. And I even might think that I deserve it. And now, if you haven't already, you're sensing the multiple entry points that shame has to strike. Thompson writes, we yearn to tell and hear stories of goodness and beauty. And this is the echo of God's intention. We long for our stories to be about joy, not just reflections of what we believe, but of who we are, who we long to be. But shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. So let's revisit our framework. Sensing and feeling is then processed, which then becomes our narrative or our story, which is then reinforced by our surroundings. As we talked about last week, shame is a tactic. It's a weapon of the enemy, of Satan. And if you look back to Genesis 3 with our framework in mind, where does the serpent strike first? How does he make his first move against Eve? Where does shame emerge first? Well, shame first emerges as a feeling. That's the very start. And we don't need language to experience shame. Hence, why shame enters our story from the time we are infants. As I mentioned earlier, infants can sense disapproval. They can sense rejection as early as 15 months. Maybe the root sensation, the root feeling for you stemmed out of something a family member said to you or or continues to say to you. Anything ranging from, is that the best you can do, to why can't you be more like your sister? Or you'd be more attractive if you lost some weight. 
Or maybe you suffered a different form of abuse. Or maybe a humiliating or traumatic experience comes to mind. But now what can we do about that? You know, how, how can we help how we feel? But check out what Thompson writes. Our problem with shame is generally that we tend to respond to it by relationally moving away from others rather than toward them while experiencing within our own minds a similar phenomenon of internal disintegration. This leads us to that second stage, processing. This avoidance or, or moving away from the feeling of shame in the people is partly a survival mechanism. You know, we tend to move away from pain, not towards it. Last week, I asked you all to think of an embarrassing moment. Chances are you didn't like to dwell on that memory or that image very long. You know, usually when we feel shame, we retreat. We, we move away from the cause of that discomfort, and we move away from people and, and their gazes. But it's in this stage, this stage of processing, that shame digs its claws in. Shame thrives on our unawareness or our avoidance. This is why the serpent both isolates and downplays things when to Eve. But whereas healthy processing would be confronting the feeling and the source of the shame head on with God and with others, unhealthy processing has us self-isolating, avoiding God and others. And then in our minds, we either deny or downplay or we set up defenses or worse, we accept the message of shame about us and that we believe that it's true which then plays into our narrative, our story. Over time, as we hear messages that essentially all say, you are not enough, if these messages are not confronted, they become part of our story. We come to believe the messages of shame. And so when it comes to our mind and our stories, practice makes permanent. In Genesis, how does Eve respond to the serpent? Well, she doesn't go, okay, hang on, Mr. Serpent. I'm, let, me, let me go check with God real quick and make sure I'm remembering things correctly, and then we can you know, continue talking about the fruit. No, she moves away from God. And then think about what happens in her mind. The story gets rewritten. This is the, the internal disintegration that Dr. Thompson is talking about. Shame is rewriting the story. It's rewriting God's story. In this case, after the serpent incites the feelings of doubt, the sensation of shame, we see shame rewriting the story from one in which you know, God is someone who is good, loving, someone who provides, to a story in which God doesn't tell Eve the whole story and therefore must not love her, and therefore she must not be very close or very important, and ultimately that she is not enough. Do you see how the enemy is a deceiver who distorts truth and reality using shame? And so now we must return to a very familiar question. What is your story? As we talk through the stages of how our stories are written and how shame infiltrates, distorts, and pollutes our stories, 
ultimately rewriting them and derailing us from the story of beauty, goodness, and joy that God is writing in our lives. What is coming to mind for you? I just want to say, if throughout any part of this teaching, or even last week, if I've said something that was triggering for you, I apologize. It's not my intention to draw pain to the surface merely to make a point. But it is my intention, however, to extend Jesus' invitation to awareness, healthy confrontation, and the road to healing. In his company, in the reality and the truth of his love and his grace, and in safe community. And so to end, let me provide a teaser for next week by laying out some starting steps for us to begin to rewrite our stories. As I was writing this teaching, for some reason, I had that song, The Scientist by Coldplay going through my head. Many of you were not alive when the song actually came out. But the hook at the end of the chorus states, Oh, take me back to the start. So how do we begin to take it back to the start? Back to God's original story for us. Back to his beautiful story of creativity and joy. Well, if shame begins as a sensation or a feeling, but then sinks its claws into us in the stage of processing, hoping that we won't process our feelings in healthy ways, hoping that we'll choose instead self-isolation, ignorance, avoidance, denial, or unawareness, then we must start by choosing awareness and choosing confrontation. Redemption of our stories begins in the mind. This is why Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I know for some it will be more painful than for others. But we start by taking a deep breath, by inviting God into the mix, and then revisiting that painful feeling or that memory. And then we ask ourselves these questions. What is the story that I am believing? What is the story that shame is trying to tell me in my life? You'll never be good enough unless you do this. You'll never be lovable or wanted unless you look like this. That thing that happened in your past that will continue to haunt you, you are ugly and dirty and you are not enough. What is the story you are believing? What is the story shame is trying to tell you in your life? And as you process, wrestle, consider this. What does the enemy want me to believe about myself? What does the, what does the enemy want me to believe about myself? And lastly, what truth does God want to draw me back into? What is the story that God wants to bring me back into? 
on the docket next week is, is finding healing through vulnerability and encouraging, nurturing community. But today we'll end by practicing vulnerability with ourselves first and with God. Letting him in as we revisit the shame and the pain for the sake of healthy confrontation, processing, and rewriting the stories that shame has distorted in our lives. And so before we do this, before, before we do this together, we really need to pray. So will you stand with me as we pray together? Father God, we believe that you are writing good, beautiful stories of creativity and joy in our lives. And we also know that the enemy wants to distort, derail these stories, that the enemy wants to deceive and to accuse and to trap us in cycles of shame and self-hate and worthlessness and to ultimately keep us away from you and away from life-giving relationship with you and with the people around us. And so beginning today, as we're invited by you, as we're empowered by you, Lord, we wanna take a stand. We wanna turn around. We wanna let you in as you rewrite our stories, and as we participate with you in doing that. Give us the courage to confront. Give us the courage to process. Give us wisdom. Show us grace as we show grace to ourselves. And lead us to nurturing community, to supportive friends, brothers, and sisters who will walk with us who will point us to truth, but who will love us as you do. We pray this all in Jesus' name.